You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast recorded on the lands of the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders, past, present and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Netalitsky and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Rania Sawalhi. Rania has more than 20 years of experience in K-12 and higher education and has worked as a teacher, vice-principal, principal of an international school, strategic manager, researcher and lecturer. She's won several awards, such as the ICSI-JPCC 2020 Innovation Award for designing a female empowerment program, which included career readiness and social innovation. And she was a Study UK Alumni Awards finalist for social impact. In 2019, Rania completed her PhD in Educational Leadership from the University of Warwick and has published a number of research and books in peer-reviewed journals. She's a co-founder of the Women Ed Middle East and North Africa Network, the Leading Innovation for Education Global Network, and she's co-coordinator of the ICSI Educational Leadership Network. Welcome, Rania. Thank you for having me, and thank you for this great opportunity, Deborah. I'm looking forward to our conversation, and I thought we could just start by discussing pracademia, which is something that you and I have both explored in our work for the Journal of Professional Capital and Community, a special issue that I co-edited. And you co-wrote a paper on the perceptions of 18 pracademics in an Arab context. And I know that your experience in education spans schools and the tertiary sector and higher education. So I've got a couple of questions around pracademia. One is around how you identify in that space or not. And the other is around if you can talk a little bit about that study that you did and what you found. The first time I heard about this term, it was in EXIT 2020 when I attended some of the sessions that had been presented. And then I had the chance to explore it more during our study. And it was kind of an enlightening process because I always thought that we separate schools and practices and what's happening within the academic life. But that was not the case. And I was thinking that I was trying to bridge the gap because there's kind of understanding faculty members who work in universities or colleges are thinking with a theoretical perspective and don't know much about what's happening within schools. And the other side, the school or the practitioners would think that scholars or researchers are not much involved about day-to-day challenges. And that was something I always was trying to do. So I tried to develop what I'm working on as part of uh, research findings into practical projects or implementations within the field or kind of contributions. And then I started, you know, after the call was looking how to define pracademia or how to see my colleagues, how they look, see it or define it within their uh, fields or within their practitioners. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The way that the interviewees, and now I'm talking about the findings of the study, the interviewees' answers were so heartbreaking, <laughs> heart-melting, because of their identities and the way that they were describing their roles and as if that they were invisible. So we interviewed what they have been called specialists within Qatar University and some working in Ministry of Education and uh, working in Qatar. And specialists, they might teach in the university or they have kind of teaching roles, but they are not allowed to do research. They are not recognized as scholars or um, academics, but they are called kind of uh, faculty non-teaching or they might help other faculty members. 
So one of the interviewees, I still remember her name, well, she was explaining her experiences as much as she had introduced, but she mentioned that as if that I'm invisible to others. They don't even recognize. And what's beyond that even, like I faced some of those challenges myself when some of the faculty members did not allow me to contribute to research because I thought that this is not part of your job or you're not, you shouldn't be involved in this. And that took me to another level that I need to contribute and I need to be involved in this. I need to learn more. So your experience yourself is also that there's been a real divide between this is academic, this is theory, this is research, and this is practical and this is teaching, so that those things have been quite separated. I think I remember you talking in the paper about identity and about credibility, but it sounds like you know, you're know you someone who has worked in a number of spheres in education and so there's a value in bringing those spaces together and working across them and being recognised as being able to, to maybe work across them rather than having to be separated into only one or the other? Exactly. And this is something I've been mentioned. For example, I used to work as an international school principal. So if I knew that I can contribute to publications and research, I might have been continued working as a, as a principal and still working on research. But that's a concept that's not commonly introduced or known within the Arab countries. So you either go and work in the universities or you stay and work on a principalship, being as a principal. The other thing is some people will start telling you, you're wasting your time. So why are you doing this? Just focus on something practical. And this is the word that they will be using, something practical, more than just publishing papers and putting them on the shelf. So our concept of publications or this kind of contribution is also different because I need to investigate something that would be helpful, that would be useful for both, for researchers to build and to build research agendas, and also for practitioners to use and to utilize the findings and start disseminating and working on that. So was there a perception then that if you're in the practice sphere in education, that if you're a principal, a school leader, a teacher, that it's not useful or valuable to be engaged in research, that you should be focusing on the practical aspects of the role? I can generalise, but yes, this is, this is the understanding that I have faced and I know that many people are having this kind of concept. I hope that it will be changing uh, soon, but still that um, being working in, a, in such an environment has a totally different requirements and uh, um, you know aspects and even kind of licensing. Till now, it's not recognized. And even you know, like in Western countries, there's kind of professional journals. You can even publish uh, about your work, your studies, something that even action research. But this is not, um, we don't have kind of uh, professional journals in Arabic so that, or you know, easily could be accessed or known for Arab uh, practitioners so that they can contribute or know more about it. So there are lots of things and that's really surprising because most of the colleges of education or the education policies in our countries are borrowed from the West. So sometimes I have big question mark. What are we really learning? Are mm-hmm. we taking some and leaving the others? What and how are we um, introducing? And that's take me also to another paper that I was uh, involved in and published about defining education leadership. So we can just borrow policies and start implementing something without preparing the context and having the mindset of people how to contribute fully and uh, understand how they can implement or apply education leadership maybe in health sector because I use also to train nurses and some of the medical staff on how to design educational campaigns and educational opportunities, different forms. And some people would say, but this is not education leadership. I said, there's a difference between school leadership and education leadership. 
this is education leadership and we can all be involved in a certain way. And I think everyone has noticed this within COVID. Education is not only schooling. We need to do more than that. So has your concept of educational leadership then changed over the last couple of years during the pandemic? Actually, it had uh, supported my vision. You know, like when I discuss with everyone, like we can involve it in edutainment, we can involve it in health sector, we can involve it in different aspects. People start to recognize what I was telling or talking about more than just, you know, introducing new ideas. But now I'm also involved, for example, in museums for teaching and learning and training teachers on how to utilize kind of uh, opportunities within the arts or the different sectors that having also for play for play for children's play and um, like Kidzania cities or labor market different aspects but I'm so happy that I've been given the opportunity to integrate education leadership principles within all this so is that speaking to some of the work that you do with your edgy enterprise work that you're sort of bringing education to other things because you're the co-founder and director of Edu Enterprise and you've also launched things like the Educational Leadership Lab and an Educational Leadership Coaching e-platform and you're talking now about education being not just schools but thinking more broadly about across sectors and across society and community. So what is the role, I suppose, as a community aspect of that but also of that entrepreneurship aspect of education and where it might go? What's your thinking around that? One of the most main approaches that we use within our organization is design thinking. So helping people to start finding solutions, developing solutions, uh, not only to adapt the, with the problem, but to change it and to understand the human aspect from it. And this is exactly what we do in, in education, because education is about human. It's not about numbers and statistics and scores and, you know, kind of assessment results. We need to understand that we're here to unleash the potential of each one of us and also to find for ourselves, <laughs> for our staff, teachers, for the community, for everyone is involved involved in this process. So design thinking simply is uh, a process of problem solving where we can humanize and focus on the needs of the people, but also have a test of what we're doing. And that's why we launched the Education Leadership Lab because we're encouraging people mainly in the Arab countries not to um, borrow solutions, ready-made solutions from different contexts that might not work in their schools or their systems, but to start testing and trying and focusing on what exactly they need. And to able to be able to do this, we also had created kind of a coaching platform because coaching technique would help them to identify questions and to reflect on their practices and, you know, to stop asking, okay, just let, tell me what to do. Because this is a common question we have in, in the region, you know, like they will attend a, a very um, prestigious training and then they will say, okay, but at the end, uh, tell me exactly what to go and what to do. But that's not the case. <laughs> I have seen you write about your context in Qatar and in the Arab context and talk about the fact that often reforms are sometimes borrowed from the Western world or from elsewhere and sort of lifted in without an understanding of context. So it sounds like the work that you're doing is really about trying to make sure that those people in your region are applying their knowledge of context and their own thinking to the solutions that they might need to come up with that will serve their communities rather than something that might have worked in a very different context. Totally, because grant um, organisation, research and development organisation had uh, written um, a famous report about the reform of public. And many people will start asking, you know, just go for other countries. I have done or conducted or participated in several comparative studies. But I focus mainly on Qatar because Qatar is, uh, is 
known for focusing on education in the region. And many Arab countries are copying or learning from their practices, waiting for the results that they are having or implementing. At the same time, Qatar is open for international organizations and working hand in hand to develop their system. So we need to utilize this opportunity as much as possible for us to learn not only about the main concept, but also about the context and the history of that. The other aspect is about decolonizing, because although many Arab countries have been recently uh, away from occupation, like uh, in the 70s, 1970, but still many of the systems are uh, echoing the countries that had been responsible of, of, uh, of the country, like um, UK or France or different countries. So this is something even ministries and policymakers are reflecting and seeing how they can build their own systems and go within the labour market. So in some ways, is the system then kind of haunted by those echoes of colonialism and colonisation? And what does it mean to decolonise education? Is that about that empowerment of educators in the region to take ownership over what they're doing? Is it rather than following others? What does that decolonisation piece look like for you? For me, uh, because it will differ from a person to another, but um, it's, it's clearly stated within everything I'm doing. I'm just asking myself and others to start clarifying the concepts and not assuming that everyone using the language have the same understanding or the same implementation, because that uh, would differ and that would change everything. It sometimes might confuse and sometimes might make it easier. So starting with defining those kind of theories, concepts, terms that we're using, because it will differ if we use them in our language, we have different contexts. So it's not only about defining, it's about using the right term as translated terms to be used within the practitioners or the researchers in our country. Another perspective is to understand the heritage or the culture or the context that we're talking. So you can find that many international schools have been opening here in the region, but not many are familiar of cultural sensitivity or what's exactly need to be done or what the expectations of the parents. Some parents have the awareness, but other parents are just saying, no, those principals are in charge and they, they are leaving. While when I interviewed some principals, many of them were telling me like, we're waiting for parents and Ministry of Education to clarify what's expected. So you see like it's, it's a mutual kind of relationship. It's not one leading the way, it's everyone involved and helping to a certain degree according to the policies and the education plans that they're having. But this is not clear for everyone. Um, those kind of uh, research or exploring what's happening within the country or how to cope or how to develop those kind of activities. If we go to the public schools, you will find that we're just copying strategies and the best practices from all over the world and forcing teachers to implement something that they are not used to. And then then have clear understanding of what exactly do you mean and how it's connected. And you might be surprised, Deborah, that Many teachers in our countries, they teach, but they don't have a license of teaching. So they are specialized in math, uh, science, they might be engineers, but they uh, have experience in school, so they are joining uh, by default. It's not kind of a uh, proper preparation or training to be a teacher. So they have their knowledge specialization, but not teacher training. Yeah. So what are those things that the world could learn from Qatari education and that the education system or teaching that goes on, or what are the things that you might hope to see or that you're, you are seeing that are exciting in Qatar in, in terms of what is happening in education that is relevant to context? 
the way that the, the Qatari system is focusing on the, um, the infrastructure and preparing kind of environment, that's really interesting. And they are, I think, having a very um, advanced levels within, you know, kind of being awarded or the, uh, the ranking. I think they're in the first place or the second place in the, uh, in the region. And the level of training, the kind of programs and the initiatives that having. But also we need to be aware that um, Qatar is attracting many uh, Arab countries and many international uh, teachers from all around the world. How are we developing those systems? They are working on uh, international schools, uh, policies and systems in place. They're still, but it's under developing. And many other contributions. And I'm sure that you had heard about WISE, mm. World Innovation Education Summit. And that's something really interesting, you know, like to find all those contributions in one place. Mm. That's really rare. With all the opportunities, the words, this is something that Qatar is really leading. And also within education above all contribution that focusing on highlighting how to protect education from being attacked during crisis or conflict zones or zero child out of school or different aspects. So although Qatar is a small country, but the level of contributions and the responsibility, they are trying to open a gate for everyone to contribute and to participate. So on the one hand, you've got this really rich heritage and history. And on the other hand, you've got people coming from all over the region and all over the world. So you end up with this very big melting pot of actually different people in that same context, which maybe is both enriching, but also adds to that confusion of not having that shared language and shared understanding too sometimes. Indeed, indeed. And that brings another responsibility of also translating the Arabs' contribution to education even before 500 years or 600 years and just to have kind of shared ground of sharing knowledge and understanding what does it mean for us and you know long history of schools madrasa sometimes they call them in, in pakistan or indonesia and malaysia so there's long history but it's not clear even for the arabs themselves so it sounds like there's and i know this comes up in some of your work but there's a kind of an identity piece there about who we are as educators or as Arabs or as people or as leaders um, and how people sort through that and how they understand their role and their own professional identity. Yep, because lots of, of the, the programs or the degrees within the universities are taught in different languages. The language of instruction mainly might be in English or they are studying in different contexts. So they, they have some information, but connecting it to their own beliefs, values, when I completed my PhD, where I interviewed 96 teachers and I had surveyed for around 3,000 teachers here in Qatar, I developed kind of a scale and measurement so that they can identify their values, their beliefs, uh, some of their skills in leadership and coaching and different aspects. I'm originally from Jordan. So identity is very important because having the information in another language and not being able to understand fully about our culture or how we can contribute because sometimes we have the initiative or the program is developed by an expert or a consultant uh, or um, someone coming from other country, either Arab or either in a Western one, but we have to implement it as it is. Now there are many voices are raising them, need to modify it or to reflect on it, but there's still a question of the people that they are modifying to what level or extent are they really expert on the level of modifications and what exactly to be modified? So there's partly the need for modification, but people's different willingness or 
sense of permission to actually make modifications that they're confident about will work? Yeah, you know, like sometimes we have teachers, school principals will say, just leave it as it is, it will be much easier. So, you know, like don't uh, give us more, more work to work on something that is unknown or, you know, we don't have a previous example for that. This also led me during some of my, my work to explore what's called tall poppy syndrome. I'm sure that you had in... We have that in Australia. Yeah, uh, it's not only Australia. You can find it everywhere. So it's, you know, sometimes they will just try to um, stop someone from changing something um, in different ways and different forms. And that's something we all need to be aware of. So resistance and the change. And this is everything that we, re we read in previous literature, but how to practice it in the real world, that's another story. Mm, yeah, I think resistance to change is probably universal in education, schools and systems. It's a human nature, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I notice you've got a new edited book coming out called Islamic-Based Educational Leadership. So I'm sort of coming off that idea of what it means to be, you know, a leader in the Arab world or a, an Islamic leader, and that's something that you seem to have coined in that book. And you've written a chapter in there called Be the Light, Islamic-Based Teacher Leadership. I'm wondering if you could t tell me a bit more about the book or talk about what other features and idiosyncrasies of Islamic-based leadership as you see it? What, what are the things that are key to that way of looking at leadership? It's a very interesting question. Okay, that will take us... Um, another, are you ready another, for another, another two hours? Podcast? <laughs> <laughs> okay, while I was reading about uh, religious education and Islamic education or Islamic education leadership, I admire and I respect all of the previous contributions and publications and everything about it. But still, I consider that we can't say that this is um, Islamic education or Islamic education leadership, having this adjective or identifying it like this. Why? Because we have different schools and different thoughts and different ideologies within the um, Muslim countries. So we have Sufis, we have Sunnis, we have Shias, we have different aspects and different forms and schools. So you can generalize and say this is one term that could be for everyone. Mm. Um, I think that might be similar. So you have Catholic, you have Orthodox, you have, you know, like different forms. So this might be um, worth for researchers while they're working on um, on education from an Islamic perspective. They need to identify their position and their epistemologies. So what are you exactly talking about? And then we need to identify, is it something that had been uh, driven from our holy book, the Quran, or is it your own understanding? Because there is a difference. If you're taking it directly, you, it's okay. This is something that I can't negotiate much, but I respect and go. But if this is something that you're uh, understanding and building a kind of a theory, so it's negotiable and we, you know, we might discuss, we might develop and work in. That's why I suggested uh, for the other editors to come up with a word or the term, which is called Islamic-based education leadership. And while we had a systematic review about um, Islamic-based education leadership publications. There are different different cases that we're facing currently within the region, within the world, actually. So we have um, Muslims and non-Muslims countries, but you might be a principal or um, school leader or an education leader that you're responsible for those learners. So are we calling those schools Muslim schools? Or this is an Islamic school? How are we defining Islamic education? Or we might have a non-Muslim who's working in international school in a Muslim country. So is this called Islamic education? Mm -hmm. So we need to have kind of reflection on what exactly is happening. 
for example, we had this kind of discussion in in the United States in one of the conferences, and they said, yeah, we have a definition for Islamic schools. I said, okay, that works for uh, Islamic schools in the United States, but you can generalize the definition for all other countries because they don't have the same criteria. That's why I'm, I'm saying that we need to revisit some of the publications and the work and see to what extent we can um, build on it or we can generalize and we start um, having kind of a theory. And at this stage, I'm more confident of saying it's more about from an Islamic perspective, more than saying that this is for sure the Islamic theory. So still, this is the kind of discussion. And when I said that it's an Islamic-based education leadership, because we have many in common. So if you're talking about social justice, that's embedded within our religion. If you're talking about um, taking care of the human and the spirituality and lots of things, that's embedded. So we can't say that this is not acceptable or don't interfere, don't integrate this within other systems because this is labeled as Islamic while everyone can benefit from. So there are things that we might think of what kind of universal things that we might all learn and start, as Dr. Ann Lopez would say, relearn or reread or re-lead. Uh, mm -hmm. So there are many things that we might think about it differently, even for myself. And the chapter that it had been based on my work and or the interviews that I have done within the, uh, the PhD. While I interviewed the 96 teachers, although some of them were not Muslim, but all of them talked about faith and talked about their connections and relationship with others. So it's not only teachers and students or teachers, colleagues, or teachers and principals. It's, it's everything coming together. So I created what I called an orbit model. So you can imagine the teachers are like the sun, and every uh, other aspect or um, stakeholders are around them. As much as you come near to this teacher, you would feel their contribution. You would feel their area of expertise, or you might even be influenced of their uh, practices, even if they are not teaching us. So sometimes we see a teacher that is just passing in the corridor and the, uh, in the school and say, oh my God, you know, the way that she welcomes everyone, the way that she takes care of everyone, that's really inspiring. So it's kind of a light in a place that everyone is looking for something or someone to take care of or to enlighten or to give hope, if we will call it hope strategy. That's such a hopeful and optimistic metaphor. I'm thinking about, you know, some of the the ways in which the profession is sometimes not respected, not seen as a beacon of light, and you've got this idea of the teacher as the sun that people orbit around at different distances and perhaps get different amounts of warmth from, but that there's an influence there uh, that's that radiates and, and is maybe direct or indirect, depending on how far you are. I think that's a really interesting metaphor. Um, how, how, how did you shape it any further than that? I'd love to hear a bit more about it. I think every teacher can practice leadership, but she might or he might not be called as uh, teacher leaders because, you know, they don't have the intention or they don't have the consistent practice or different aspects or the level of skills, etc. But everyone can influence anyone. <laughs> there's kind of a human aspect that we need to reinforce and um, celebrate or embrace more within everything that we're designing. And if we go back to design thinking, that's something called think as a designer, because you need to be uh, empathetic. You need to consider others and feel and um, think differently. And also you need to be so optimistic while you're thinking, you know, even if they're struggling or we're all struggling, we need to keep trying. So there are different aspects or mindset of uh, applying design thinking that would allow us to work with diverse groups 
with a different context and being able to test new environments and new techniques while also having this kind of energetic um, environment that, yeah, we can do it, you know, like, <laughs> let's try. So we keep you keep coming back to this idea about humanising education, humanity in education, uh, and I know that one thing you mentioned was integrating psychological first aid, wellbeing kind of things into teaching and education. Can you talk to me a little bit about what your thinking is around that? Yep, I was honoured to um, establish a committee within Qatar Red Crescent, and I'm also an international member of um, International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent across the world. So we have lots of work about mental health and psychological first aid. Uh, we had since 2019, but mainly during COVID, we have lots of training. And when I used to uh, supervise student teachers in college of education, I integrated psychological first aid within the training and the preparation. So I will give them the simple techniques and the awareness that you can apply this with your students and you can apply this with your um, you know, colleagues, with families, wherever that you're working, because this is kind of supporting each other and this is kind of understanding what's happening. So don't go there, just sit and talk about work. You need to understand what's happening beyond that. And what was really interesting that one of my student teachers, though at the beginning of the practical experience, one of her students in the class lost her father. So she gave some techniques for the students and for the other teachers. And even she applied some of them with the student. And that had changed the student's life completely. She came to me and she said, I have done this and that. And the parents' impact, you know, like the mother's impact that she came and she told me that this is how her daughter coped with the, with the change or with the loss. And this is what had happened. The students themselves and, you know, it was a totally different experience. Integrating those kind of techniques and examples with an even teacher preparation or teacher professional development sometimes will allow them to consider their work differently because we're not machines. You know, we go to school, yes, we have lots of tasks and I under, totally understand how much is overwhelming everything that's happening and all the tasks, the requirements, you know. But also we need to make care, um, you know, to be careful and to make kind of um, time or activities or design specific things, how to, to support each other, either within the difficult times or, you know, like normal times that we're having. And I think COVID, while we're focusing on well-being, we have students coming from Yemen, coming from Syria and different countries. And those countries are well known for the, for the, for the war that's happening within their countries. There are lots of examples that we might start, you know, sharing about how teachers can help students by simple acts or simple activities uh, to understand and to deal with the changes that they're facing. Yeah, because we all bring our whole lives to schools, teachers, students, parents, uh, and experiences, including traumatic ones. Can you share any of those tips that you give to teachers about what it is that they might do? Is it about tuning into students, listening? What are the kinds of things that they end up with in their toolbox that they can then apply in their classrooms? Either for teachers or also for school principals. But for every educator, I would always say, first of all, identify your strength and focus on what makes you come because no one's fault what you're facing or what you're having. So you need to understand or to apply those techniques with yourself first. And you have your kind of um, relaxing or mindfulness or whatever strategies that would support you to go with um, your real focus and intention and presence in every um, 
classroom or activities with the students. And the second, you need also to understand that it's not a battle, it's not a war, you know, like you need to sit and to listen and finish one, two or three. You need to understand the deeper reasons. And that goes back also to design, to design thinking techniques, just ask the right question. So if the student is not, is, is not doing what's expected, just ask more and more. And I personally faced that when I used to work as a principal. When all the teachers in one of the secondary classes, they complained against one of the students. And there was something wrong, you know, like um, she suddenly became irresponsible. She suddenly, she's not studying, although the previous years she was really uh, capable of doing many things. So I brought her to the office and I said, listen, you're not going out. We're having the full day together. I'm ready to listen. I'm finishing my work with you. Whenever you're ready to talk, just let me. At the beginning, half an hour of the first hour, she refused. But then she said um, a very magical word to me. She said, are you all also forcing me to do things that uh, it's enough what I'm facing at home? Okay, so that was the term. What are you facing at home? Are you ready to speak to me, etc.? So they discovered that her mother was facing cancer and she was outside the country. There are different issues that she's facing. So I met with all of her teachers and I said that this student is facing lots of challenging times and uncertainties. I'm not going to discuss the details of the because of the confidentiality, but I'm asking you a question, you know, like we have around 10 teachers, 11 teachers for different subjects, and all of the teachers, no one had noticed that there's something could be uh, done for the students to support her. I can't believe that. Mm. So I might understand that eight teachers are really busy or, you know, like they didn't um, see what's happening, but at least one teacher could do something. So we try to have those kind of conversations and contributions. So you talked there about going into conversations with focus and intention and presence. And I think you talked about teachers have not having noticed. And I think one of the challenges is around teachers are very busy. So how do we make sure that they feel that they either have the permission to or that they should make time in their lessons to be present with students, to tune into how students are going? And you were talking there about, you know, seeking to understand the why of a student's behaviour rather than just wanting them to comply with what's happening and maybe going down a punitive route rather than a conversation that's a bit like a coaching conversation, which is really often about presence and listening uh, and is really useful in these kind of things. But yeah, I think there's a few layers there about the techniques we could bring, but also teachers sometimes feeling too busy to to do the tuning in part. Yeah, be surprised. For example, one of my student teachers, when she complained of one of the students, I just asked her, okay, you don't have time during the class, but you can simply ask her while she's going to her break to join you and to help you within holding some of your stuff or something. Just make it so natural and start asking and, you know, encouraging her. I see that you're so smart. You can do this, how we can improve it. What do you like next time? And from those kind of simple conversations for two or five minutes, she can you know, develop kind of a relationship or rapport with the, with the students. But if we keep it very formal, you know, and just kind of a soldier take, giving orders, uh, orders, so it's not going to help anyone. And when the teachers change their techniques, some of their techniques, they will start enjoying more and they will find more time because the students will be also enjoying and it will go more smoothly <laughs> and things will differ even for primary. Some might say this is for uh, middle schools or high school, but I, I've had also experienced this with teachers in KG and in early uh, primary schools. So it, it goes for everyone. 
as you said at the beginning, I was reminded there's a quote that sometimes people will say back to me from one of my chapters where I say that education is not an algorithm but a human endeavour and you talked about education being human, not about numbers and statistics. And I think there's this thread through our conversation of what you've talked about really being about looking to the child, being student-centred, thinking about uh, what that child needs and then more broadly what that community needs or that region needs and thinking really humanly and humanely about education and about what we're providing that might go beyond content and classroom as we might traditionally see them. Exactly. And, and that would answer many of the questions that you asked me at the beginning about decolonizing or what exactly we mean about defining. So this is basically of allowing ourselves to see things in a different aspect or according to what's really needed. Well, thank you, Rania. We're coming towards the end of our time together, but I'm going to move us to our final five questions, which I call the enlightening round. The first of which is, what is something unexpected that people might not know about you? I would like to share something that's commonly I'm, I'm not sharing, that I've been the first female to do many things in my family for the first time. So I was the first one to study bachelor, master's, PhD, and I was the first one uh, to take her driver driving license and many things. So you might think this is kind of a normal, uh, you know, kind of contribution for other families, but for mine, no, it was not. And there was a long <laughs> process to go through this. That brings me around to something I was going to ask about, which was that a lot of your work is about championing women and women in leadership, female empowerment. A lot of the work that you've done is in that space to encourage others. Is that partly, does that come from your own experience and your own experience of being the first female in your family to do some of those things? Yeah, definitely, because I know so many women would do lots of things if they had been supported or if they had been allowed. And that depends on different contexts and different countries, not only in the Arab countries. But sometimes they need to see an example or someone who's trying this before, or sometimes they just need to have the courage from themselves. So it depends and varies. So in everything that I'm doing, sometimes you will notice that I'll be the first one to participate or even to start this kind of contribution. But I'm enjoying because myself i just like to start something new and then i start seeing others joining and asking more and more and have this kind of curiosity of how we can be involved and you know be part of this and a lot of the work that you do is actually around the idea of network whether that's the women ed network or global innovation networks or other kinds of networks what what do you see as the power of the network because obviously that is something that you are involved in creating and developing in in lots of different arenas I believe that we can achieve a lot if we work together and if we share and learn, because at the end, this is a learning journey. And it's really interesting because about storytelling and hearing, because sometimes if you just zoom in, you would think that you're doing super work. But if you zoom out and you look at the bigger context, you would integrate and develop your own practices and even others. So the networks is kind of um, a greater opportunity to socialize, to learn, and to feel supported. And I always tell, you know, especially Tristan and Adria, like I'm really fortunate to have this kind of support group and uh, likely-minded people that you can share and you can discuss and you can laugh. And there are many things that we really can contribute and participate in. I think it also allows us to go beyond our own local networks, doesn't it? And to reach out with that, that idea about the like-minded people that you can find even when they're not in your local area. And about storytelling, because I always find that women in specific and everyone around the world would feel inspired if they hear stories, stories about being facing failure or stories about successful. So there are lots of things that we might share 
it might not be that much for you, but it might be for another person. It's so inspiring and enlightening and life-changing and many other things. Mm. What is something that's currently on your desk? <laughs> We're about to launch um, a career development association. And that's something I'm really enjoying because I did not think that I will be so much involved in career readiness and career guidance. Uh, but one of my recent roles in Qatar Foundation, I've been responsible for uh, developing policies for teachers and schools about integrating career readiness and career development, career guidance for students. And I found there's um, a gap, a huge gap in the Arab region and many countries about the role of school principals and teachers and how it could be integrated within daily lessons and lots of planning and activities. So there is something that we are uh, developing as an Arab Career Development Association. Hopefully, it will be launched within two months. And um, on some of the studies related to how school principals can support teachers and uh, career readiness or career counselors on um, supporting students and doing more within their schools. And who is someone that inspires you in your work? Okay, I'll start. Um, my mother, for sure, peace upon her, but also everyone who would just love to learn. I can have a long list, but you know, even if I didn't meet you and have this kind of conversation before, but I see that you're doing lots of contributions, so you inspire me. And I just keep, you know, uh, reading more and digging more what kind of things and uh, what kind of contributions and things that I might learn more about. But definitely, um, there are lots of people around me. I'm so fortunate to have them, like my parents, my husband, my family, my brothers, and I'm so lucky because they don't deal with me that, um, you know, like as if that I'm not expert, it will, although that they are engineers or they are, you know, having different discipline, but they start talking to a level that I can integrate some of the concepts within my work. And this is something kind of normal, you know, aspect of something that we're doing. So many people, I'm so grateful for having them in my life. That's fantastic. What's one thing come, that you've got coming up that you're excited about? There is a book that I had published in Arabic, which is related to the Islamic-based education leadership. And it was also kind of eye-opening for me because I didn't know much about this, the author's or the scholar's contribution. But uh, we're forming kind of an educational um, lab, researchers that we're digging more and um, you know, exploring more about how we can implement some of those aspects and develop kind of frameworks, tools that to simplify it for others. Fantastic. And finally, if you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence, what is one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with? It's just to identify their values and their faith, because this is something that will direct them and uh, will affect every single decision making that they're having, even if they are conscious or unconscious about how they are developing that. It would help us to identify our priorities and also to keep focusing that we're dealing with humans, that we have environment around us. Um, we will have lots of uncertainties and challenges, but it's, we're not just reacting. We need to be proactive and to think kind of futuristic approach, something for the future, just only to deal with the current gaps or the challenges that we're facing, because we do not know what's going to happen tomorrow or maybe within an hour. <laughs> Mm. It reminds me of when you said that that psychological first aid people needed to apply it to themselves first before other people, that really knowing self and bringing yourself to self-knowledge and to calm before you can serve others. Exactly. 
And because it all starts with ourselves, even if I'm not aware of this or I think that I'm just following the system, the quality of implementing the decisions or the systems or the procedures that will be affected by my own touch. Mm, your own orbit. Thank you so much, Rania, for joining me today on the Edu Salon. Thank you for this opportunity and for this uh, questions. Um, chat. Thank you, Divor. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network by giving this podcast a rating or review and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.